Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. This is 100 million women worldwide. This is not a number to be ignored. And it is the leading cause, the number one cause of ovulatory infertility. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And this week we are continuing on my little mini lecture series. And when I say mini, I mean huge <laughs> lecture series on why fasting is different for women. So if this is your, if you missed last week, please go back and listen to that episode. We are continuing this week with a deep dive into some of the very typical hormonal presentations that I see in practice that I help uh, other coaches to care for other women uh, in their practices. And this is a, as I mentioned, a continuation of my presentation that I was asked to um, present to uh, with Oxford University. And this part, I mean, my as I was mentioning last week, I totally overprepared for this uh, for this series, and I put in so much information. I only had, uh, I think it was twenty five or thirty five minutes that I had to present to some of these researchers and 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 uh, professors and doctors, etc. So this is the part of the lecture that I didn't get to present to them. So this is kind of a bonus for you as well. So if you are watching this on my YouTube channel, you are about to see me share my screen effortlessly um, and not have any problems whatsoever, because that would never happen to me. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next 
level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. So we left off last week talking a little bit about how your period starts in your brain. And I'll just remind you again, I'm picking up exactly where I left off uh, from last week's episode. So if this is not making any sense to you, go back and listen to last week so that you can get the context for this week. So your period starts in your brain, essentially, right? It starts in the hypothalamus where we release follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And this is particularly important for our women with uh, PCOS, um, because we can clinically see a very high ratio of luteinizing hormone to follicular stimulating hormone. So normally, uh, if you want to understand, if you suspect that you might have PCOS, let's say, um, it would be, it would behoove you, let's say, and your functional medicine practitioner, your allopathic physician, whoever you're working with to test those ratios. So the best time to test LH and FSH, uh, where we want to get that one-to-one ratio, which would, what is what would be considered normal is day two or three of your menstrual cycle. So day two or three of your bleed week is where we want to be measuring. So women with polycystic ovary syndrome, we can have much, we can have market, we'll say, uh, luteinizing hormone elevation levels in this time period. 
where we can see levels rising two to three times that of follicular stimulating hormones. This is a really good time to catch it. And for many, there are many reasons. Um, one of the reasons is usually that insulin levels are in the body are too high. So if your insulin levels are, if you have this sort of state of hyperinsulinemia, uh, this can elevate luteinizing hormone. Another reason, which uh, you know we won't necessarily go into now, is hyperprolactinemia, meaning that the levels of prolactin um, are too high as well. They're also causing a surge in luteinizing hormone. And if you know anything about anything about the menstrual cycle, we know that the luteinizing hormone is very, very important right before ovulation. It is what actually gets the uh, follicle to release the primary follicle that is developed under estrogen's influence or more accurately, estradiol's influence, um, we have this elevated level of estradiol for somewhere between 40 to 50 hours, starting at about day 10 of your cycle. And then following that, we have about a 10-hour elevation, this major surge uh, in luteinizing hormones. So if you are already at a two to three times, you know, elevated above baseline level of luteinizing hormone, you're not going to get much of a surge, right? And it's the surge, it's the differential between baseline and the apex of that curve that is going to cause the follicle to be uh, to release that egg. Now, with polycystic ovary syndrome, and this is, you know, obviously like a podcast and a, a book, several books unto itself, we see a lot of other contributing factors um, to PCOS. One of them, and I teach this in my esteem certification program to my practitioners and health coaches, is that we see genetically, there does seem to be some genetic component uh, to PCOS in that we see, a, in, a, in particular, we see the gene that converts testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, which is, um, you know, a layman's term might be like super testosterone, right? Like DHT or dihydrotestosterone uh, is about six to seven times times more potent than your regular run-of-the-mill testosterone. And we see with women with PCOS that there is, you know, this like almost a thousand fold increase in some cases, thousands of folds of increase in activity of this 5-alpha reductase um, activity. So the gene itself, for those of you that want to know, is SRD5A2. Uh, and we see that upregulation in the ovarian follicle in women with PCOS. And then, of course, the metabolites of SRD5A2 also little rascals, act as inhibitors of aromatase, which is the CYP19A1 gene, which is basically the gene that's involved in the testosterone to estrogen conversion. And of course, those two things, you get, you're getting testosterone converted into dihydrotestosterone, that super testosterone, and an inhibition of estrogen production from testosterone. So te estrogen is created from um, testosterone. We have these two uh, pathogenicities, let's say, uh, that contribute to the uh, that contribute to the clinical picture and, of course, the physiological uh, abnormalities of PCOS. So, when we think about a woman um, who has, or put, you know, if you're a woman, let's say, where you have. I mean, some of the cl like classic textbook signs of PCOS are going to be. Uh, thinning hair at the temples. Okay. So that's one thing we'll often see, uh, some 
thickening, we'll say, or like very thick, wiry hairs at the chin and kind of along the hormonal area of the face, which is like the lower half of the face. Uh, you may also see ch- uh, like chest hair, back hair, hair on a woman where we wouldn't normally see it. Um, in that way, because we have this like testosteroneization, let's say, uh, of this woman where there's an excess amount of est- uh, testosterone, rather, her body will start to behave more male. And so we will see this sort of male pattern baldness, more hair on the face, chest and back. Uh, You might also even see like ectopic fat distribution, meaning that she's going to start putting on uh, adipose tissue or fat in a manner consistent with the way that a male might put on excess adipose tissue as well, which is kind of through the central region, like through the belly. You know, we often call it like the spare tire, let's say, I hate that word, but you know, just for kind of a visual, like sort of like a thickening through um, the midline. Um, you know, from a, you know, body morphology, t- like kind of perspective, she's more of an apple than she is a pear. Okay. So someone who is a bit hip heavy, like that's me, right? I got hips and a booty and I have some to spare. Uh, you might call my body type more of a pear, right? Kind of like heavier on the bottom, let's say, I mean, this is like, I'm making sweeping generalizations right now, but just as a, just as a visual. Okay. So someone who has PCOS and who's had it for a long time and it's gone underdiagnosed or untreated or whatever, um, we may see that excess adiposity through like that centralized deposition of fat, giving her a less of a waist and more of that apple type of uh, presentation. Okay. So, um, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, insulin reduction, uh, and insulin resistance. I talked a lot about that in the last podcast. Um, but moving on into, um, kind of some of the frustrations that a woman with PCOS, uh, might have, like one obviously is that having this pathogenicity, right. Having this kind of, uh, you know, uh, presentation of like excess testosterones and like the dihydrotestosterones inhibition of uh, aromatase activity. The net net here is that the ovarian follicles fail to reach ovulation. Okay. It or it causes a delay in ovulation, right? Which then, you know, will cause irregular periods, absent periods, non-existent periods. I think I mentioned this last time that this is a hundred million women worldwide, Uh, this is not a number to be ignored, okay? This is the most common endocrine disruption, you know, this endocrine disorder of women uh, in reproductive age, and it is the leading cause, the number one cause of ovulatory infertility, okay? Now, I won't get into, um, you know, well, I'll tell, I will get into it a little bit. Um, I have a problem with many words. <laughs> As a word nerd, uh, the, the name PCOS, squeak of a misnomer, not all women um, have cysts on their ovaries, okay? So about 20% of women who do not qualify for the diagnosis of PCOS actually have these so-called cysts, right? And 30% of women who have PCOS do not exhibit these cysts. And even more accurately, these are not really cysts. Like this is like, um, it's not like a pustule, let's say, or like a break, like an acne breakout. These are actually follicles that have not gone through the maturation, um, process. Um, 
Of course, the biggest frustration for a woman with PCOS obviously is her fertility. Uh, This becomes particularly important for her if she decides that she wants to have children. Obviously, I remember for myself, like, I was like, don't want them, don't want them, don't want them, don't want them. Oh my God, I really want kids. (laughs) It was like a light switch all of a sudden. You know, I couldn't stop staring at babies in parks and noticing children everywhere. And it was just like basically my biology telling me that, yeah, like you, you're ready now. Like it's time, it's time. And for a woman who, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be, uh, you know, pregnant in my second month of trying, but the first month when I got my period, I was devastated. Okay. So I cannot imagine, uh, and I won't pretend to imagine what it's like to go four months, six months, nine months, one year, um, without success. That is a very long time for someone who wants to be pregnant. That is by far the biggest challenge is their fertility. And even if you don't, care about having children, if that is not in the cards for you, as a woman, uh, it is you, It is one of your vital signs, one of blood pressure and oxygen saturation and heart rate and respiratory rate. So is the optimal cycling and optimization in general, broadly of your menstrual cycle. So as it relates to intermittent fasting, which is what this lecture series is all about, fasting is very well tolerated for my women with PCOS. And in fact, it's actually one of my favorite, my most favorite tools um, to use with my ladies who I am suspecting or I have confirmed that they have some degree of uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. So how does that look? Uh, Well, last week I was talking a little bit about some of the different types of fasts. So the uh, non-caloric liquid fast and the caloric liquid fast and calorie restriction. There's a lot of different ways to, uh, what's the saying? A lot of different ways to skin a cat. I think it's such a different and very disturbing visual, but (laughs) there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I personally, uh, depending on the severity of the case and depending on, you know, is she trying to get pregnant? We will, uh, and, and if we can kind of figure out at where she is generally in her cycle, Uh, I am going to very quickly try and build up a fasting tolerance in this woman, meaning that we are going to be doing a minimum of 12 hours of fasting every single day. But the idea is to uh, ramp that up as quickly as we can. So as quickly as I can, I'm going to try to get her on a 16-8, so a 16-hour fast, an eight-hour eating window, and ideally with a night limiter, meaning that she is going to eat let's say within eight hours, but she's going to finish eating two to three hours before her bedtime. Um, So that means that she might start eating earlier in the day, which is a little bit opposite to what I find currently, you know, kind of exists in the fasting culture. A lot of people who practice intermittent fasting, if they're doing like a 16-8, let's say, um, they try to delay their eating until let, if it's a 12, if it's a 16, eight, it might be, they'll delay their eating until noon and then they'll fat, they'll eat in if over that course of that eight hours, like 12 to 8 PM and then go to sleep. I find 8 PM, um, just a squeak late to be like, to be having your last meal because, you know, two hour clearance is 10 o'clock in the evening, three hour clearance, which is better, um, is 11. And that's right around the time when most of us at least should be going to bed. I mean, I'm kind of a 9 PM kind of girl, (laughs) 
<laughs> these days. I love going to bed at about nine th- 9.30. It's like, whew, what a day. I'm in, and I'm in my, you know, do my oils in the evening and my creams and all the stuff. Um, so for a woman with PCOS as quickly, and again, this is all dependent on the individual, right? But um, as quickly as I can get her up to a 16.8. And if it's a very severe case, I'm going to get her to be doing like 24-hour fast, 34 uh, 24 hour, pardon me, 36 and 48 hour fasts as quickly and as often as she can tolerate that. So that might be once a week. If we're talking about a morbidly obese patient, someone who also has a lot of weight to lose, we might do that several times a week um, as well. Okay. So kind of just summarizing this. So if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to see this really great um, illustration here where we're looking at sort of the clinical picture of PCOS is a hallmark. You know, there's some, there's some hallmark features here, insulin resistance, which we talked about last week, dyslipidemia, dyslipidemia, where we have an elevation of lipids, which are not ideal. We may have, uh, you know, a, a diet that's not necessarily well suited for her. Um, and that all leads to this kind of systemic inflammation, which is going to lead to sort of poor oocyte quality, impaired ovulation or absent ovulation altogether. So fasting kind of as a summary, like where fasting fits in here, it is like you know, the Beyonce and Jay-Z, you know, kind of perfect pairing, like, you know, individually they make really great music and then together it's like, you know, crazy in love and all the you know the great music that they make. Fasting and PCOS is like a match made in heaven. It's like peanut butter and jelly, you know, it's like they are very, very well suited. And often um, when we start to get a woman who has PCOS more metabolically healthy, one of the, one of the things that I do is actually start pairing back the fasting, right? Uh, and you'll hear me say this over and again, probably until you're tired of me saying it, but we need to hear things many times, sometimes for them to kind of sink in. But the diet that you follow when you're unhealthy is not going to be the same diet that you do when you're healthy. Okay. So you may need to fast aggressively. Let's say if you have PCOS and you don't have a regular period, we meet, we might need to improve that FSH to LH, um, uh, ratio by fasting day one, day two, day three, day four of your cycle, let's say. Um, we may need to get you to start lifting weights so that you are a better uh, glucose disposal agent, you know, negating the need for those sort of high insulin um, outputs. Um, and then, you know, other other there are other things, of course, that we can we can add into that, like stress management and, um, you know, all, all of that. But like fasting, we'll kind of keep it to fasting and I'll throw in a little bit of exercise um, as well, too, are very, very important for correcting this problem. Now, I will say one of the questions, interestingly, that I get, which I really think is a good question, um, it means you're paying attention. Uh, Sometimes I'll say something like lifting weights is one of the best things that you can do for PCOS because it makes you better, you know, as you grow your functional tissue, as you grow your, you know, uh, lean muscle mass, um, you are going to better control um, your insulin Um, output. And the question that I get, and I've had this enough times that it's worth bringing up is, well, 
isn't weightlifting going to make her testosterone worse? Because when she's lifting weights, we know that, you know, as we build more tissue, we naturally will increase her testosterone. And the answer is that the effects that you are going to have, the adaptations that you have when you are resistance training specifically, of course, there can be cardio in there um, as well. And usually it's, it's warranted with a woman with PCOS to be developing a program with a base of resistance training as well as cardiovascular work. Um, but the amount of, uh, healthy adaptation that you're going to have. So the improvement in lipid control, the improvement in systemic inflammation. So the reduction in cytokines, the reduction in, um, the reduction in C-reactive protein. You'll see this, like the TNF, like the tumor necrosis factor alpha, some of the reduction in prostaglandins, all of these things are going to be improved. Um, so it is, the net adaptation to resistance training is better for a woman with PCOS. And then, of course, not to mention that her ability to um, dispose of uh, circulating glucose is going to be augmented when she has more muscle, which is, a, you know, I've mentioned is going to negate the load on the beta cells of the pancreas to continually out be outputting um, insulin. So we don't have this like hyperinsulinemic state. Um, I was talking last week about insulin resistance. And one of the first places, of course, that we see insulin resistance is shocker, it's in the muscle. And it's not so much that the, um, that we can't actually get, it's not that we can't, what's happening is the cell is, is essentially starving. Like we can't actually pull the glyc, we can't get the glucose into glycogen. Um, so when we are resistance training, that improves insulin resistance almost from at the level of the myocyte almost immediately. So resistance training for a woman with PCOS, also very, very important. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about estrogen dominance. This was my, uh, this was my personal, um, um, situation for many, many years, no longer the case, but, um, it is the reason why the Betty body exists. And my whole story exists is because of my own healing journey from what I thought was a curse for being a woman, but, uh, estrogen dominance is, well, I should say a better way to describe, um, this is, when we, when we say estrogen, uh, dominance is it is unopposed estrogen relative to progesterone in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So you can see nobody wants to say that. So we just 
say estrogen dominance. Okay. So for me, um, when I was dealing with this, it was like mood swings and depression around site. Like I could, I mean, maybe sometimes I still do this, but I could watch a commercial like a day or two before I started bleeding. And it, it could be about like NyQuil <laughs> and I would just be bawling. <laughs> okay. It didn't even have to be like an emotionally, like it wasn't trying to tug at, you know, your heartstrings. I could be watching anything and I would be crying. So, um, mood swings, certainly depression. I was also very, I used to be very sad around, um, right before I got my cycle, right before I started bleeding, uh, weight gain for women with estrogen dominance. Again, coming back to that morphology 10, we tend to pack on the pounds in the lower half of the body. So that would be kind of the lower stomach area, the hips, the thighs, the bum, um, breast tenderness and swelling. So very, this was very much my story for years. Um, my, I even wrote in the Betty body book that I felt like my breasts were angry at me. Like they were just like, everything was hot. Everything was super hot. Um, my rings, I had a hard time fitting, you know, my wedding bands on my fingers, like, you know, in the last week or so of my, of my cycle. Um, and then other things that many women will experience are things like, uh, vaginal dryness, um, like, you know, either really heavy flow. That was also the case with me as well. Excessive flow, or it could also be the opposite, like scanty blood flow. Um, and then things like getting really, really hot in bed, night sweats, uh, insomnia that you could kind of predict like, okay, week three of my cycle, here we go. Like, I'm not going to sleep. Um, of course, if, if, um, estrogen is going unopposed in the luteal phase of the cycle, uh, you are going to have some, uh, changes in your sleep progesterone, which is what should be the dominant hormone, or we should see it in higher ratio, uh, higher levels relative to estrogen is actually what helps us sleep amazingly because progesterone, um, does activate GABA receptors in the brain, helps us chill out. It activates some of these inhibitory pathways that help us have some of the best sleep, let's say, um, of our life. So if you are estrogen dominant, you are going to have usually, uh, you can predict, uh, you'll have this sort of cyclic insomnia, uh, and there'll be, um, um, you know, there's, there's more symptoms, but this is kind of the gist of it. Like clinically, this is what a patient is going to be, or you might even see yourself in this, in this picture as well. So when we think about how we might apply the fasting lens to this, um, for estrogen dominance in particular, uh, you know, if you have your sort of physician's pad on, let's say, um, you want to take a really hard look at the detoxification capacity of the liver. And when I say liver detox, like I don't mean like cayenne pepper and maple syrup and lemon drinks for 10 days on end. Like that's, I'm not talking about, I'm actually, I'm talking actually about the physiological process of detoxification. So there's three phases of liver detoxification. The first is um, called hydroxylation, which is essentially, and I should just say kind of taking a 30,000 foot sort of view to detox. Detox is basically your liver and other, you know, among trees, um, taking a toxin or in this case, a hormone and setting it up 
to become more water soluble so that we can excrete it. Okay. So hydroxylation, you know, for the nerds that really want to know my beautiful nerds, uh, you're, we're just adding an OH group essentially to the, um, uh, to the thing that we are trying to get rid of. So in this case, uh, with let's say, um, estradiol, which is the most dominant hormone, we are going to either make it two hydroxy estradiol or four hydroxy estradiol. So we're adding, it's either going to go down a pathway called 2-OH uh, estradiol or estrone uh, or 4-OH uh, or 4-hydroxy estradiol or 4-hydroxy um Estrone. So we want to take a hard look at liver function. Uh, so let me finish that thought. So we had hydroxylation as phase one. Phase two is conjugation, um, which is a combination of glucuronidation, glutathionization, and methylation. Those are just really big words. All that means is that we're just preparing it packaging it up so that we can send it out to the appropriate, uh, let's say organ to, to get rid of it. So that might be throwing it to the gut, uh, and the microbiome, uh, that might be excretion through the kidneys or let's say a monk like, you know, maybe you're sweating it out, something like that. Okay. So liver function and the process of detoxification, I mentioned uh, excretion through the gut. So we want to be considering the health and well-being of the microbiome and a particular subset of the microbiome called the estrobolome and the ability to, to kind of clear um, uh, to clear some of the deconjugated um, or the conjugated, I should say, estrogen and not deconjugate it. So for women like this, this was me, gosh, forever, um, what really works well, I would say, from a clinical perspective here, and we're take, talking talking about fasting only, is usually a like a, a caloric fast. So, what <laughs> I know that that sounds like an oxymoron, <laughs> a caloric fast. Um, some of the you know fasting purists are like I've lost them. They're like, nope, nope, nope. This is not a fast. This is not a fast. This is here. This is you know hearsay. So, uh, but I disagree. I think that for women we have to be uh, very uh, cognizant of some of the different hormonal presentations. A caloric liquid fast is a appropriate. Um, both in medium and long-term uh, durations, kind of depending again on the severity. Um, but when you are having, let's say, soups, uh, you know, bone broth soups, or even like I would make minestrone or chicken soups, that kind of thing, um, it is a model of caloric restriction, but you're still, uh, you know, if you're having, let's say, a bone broth soup, um, usually soups are really rich in glycine. They're really rich in collagen. And these are going to basically, um, and there are other uh, components that are going to really help the um the amplification, let's say, of elimination. Um, a lot of times with women who have estrogen dominance, they will also complain of like leaky gut. So a lot of sort of GI distress, let's say, um, that happens um, after eating. So they feel bloated, they feel distended. Uh, consuming things like collagen, things high in glycine, these often will help with the epithelial lining of the gut, which has a really high turnover. So you're over the course of time, let's say like a one or two or even a three day fast, you're helping that over like that turnover of cells and you're making the cells better and stronger. Uh, you're also going to help with your bowel movements, right? So the more liquid um, that you are going to be consuming, hopefully that's going to help with having a nice daily BM. Um, Okay, so 
if you're watching me on uh, YouTube, uh, we're going to move to um, more of this idea of chronic inflammation um, and chronic stress. So whenever, um, so whenever I've presented anything around chronic inflammation and chronic stress um, to, let's say, a corporation or, uh, you know, I'm in front of a crowd, I'll usually say, I want you to raise your hand when you've heard three of these. I'm going to read off a list and a hundred times out of a hundred, I can't get through the full list without everybody in the room raising your hand. So we're going to play like a big collective game here because we have tens of thousands of people who download uh, this podcast every single week and you all are going to raise your hands for me. Okay. So this is going to be kind of fun. So when you hear three things, uh, if you're driving, obviously don't raise your hand, but, um, you know, if I just want you to kind of like mentally raise your hand when you've heard three things that describe you. Okay. So, uh, and usually I get most of the hands go up after I read the first couple of them. So brain fog, uh, if you've ever experienced brain fog, needing coffee in the morning to get you going, uh, energy dips through the day. So usually it's at like post lunch to kind of 3 PM time where we see if you're experiencing an energy dip, if you have difficulty falling asleep, uh, difficulty maintaining sleep, uh, weight loss resistance. So you have like an inability to lose weight, no matter what you do, uh, salt cravings, needing to snack or eat frequently. Um, moodiness is another one. Um, and of course, so just from that list, like I haven't gotten through the, <laughs> haven't gotten through the whole thing yet, but how many, I mean, hopefully you've heard at least, uh, well, not actually not hopefully I should say, uh, it's with a high predictability, I'm going to guess that as I've read that list out to you, that you've been able to say, yeah, two or three of those are definitely me. And if those are not you, then congratulations, you are winning at life and you get a gold star on your chart because you're doing really well. But for the rest of us, um, it's, it's, most of these are very, very applicable to everyday life. And eventually, of course, what happens is when you have some of these symptoms like constant brain fog, needing coffee in the morning to get you going, energy dips kind of after lunch, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, weight loss resistance, needing to eat snack frequently, moodiness, salt cravings, all this stuff. Eventually, that affects your thyroid health as well, right? Um, you know, and of course, that change um, makes it even harder to lose weight. Whenever we see thyroid function starting to drop, you know, things like cold hands, cold feet, like weight loss resistance. And then, you know, we have like the classic outer third of the eyebrow, hair falling out in clumps, like all that kind of stuff. Um, we start to see very, very heavy periods, uh, very, very classic sign with uh, women with hypo or low functioning thyroid. So in my clinical world, a woman is stressed in this way until proven otherwise. So I have a woman coming in who's complaining of weight loss resistance. She's tired. She's having trouble sleeping. Things aren't working for her in the way that they used to. It's like, all right, she's inflamed and stressed out until I can prove otherwise. I'm working on the assumption um, that she is probably in a state of hyper cortisolemia. So this is like a woman, you're, you know, maybe you're between the ages of like 30 and 55. Maybe you're a new mom, you're a mom of one or more kids. I mean, obviously, um, 
I don't have to spell out for you, but like the physical and chemical stress of being and stress, when I say stress, I mean demand, right? So that physical and chemical demand um, of being pregnant, the physical and chemical demand of labor and delivery, uh, the physical and chemical demand of breastfeeding, uh, the physical demand of sleepless nights, the, uh, we'll say, financial hit to your career, because you're probably at home if you're in the States, maybe it's six to 10 uh, weeks, depending on your employer, Um uh, in other parts of the world, uh, that maternity leave can be, you know, a year in Canada, it's a year to 18 months. And you uh, can have, depending on the company, like 50% of your wages are paid for during that year or up, up from there. Um, and of course, there's parenting challenges, there's relationship challenges, there's all the other things that are still going on while you're raising um, this little human. And this is kind of where hormonal derangement tends to start, right? And it leads to some of these other issues that we've been discussing, the PCOS, the estrogen dominance um, as well. So let's, um, I want to jump to, um, I want to jump to leptin, um, because this is something I wrote about this in my book in the Betty body. I talk about this with my practitioners in the esteem certification program. And this is kind of the single biggest area uh, or one of, I should say one of the biggest areas where we see a difference or a big, or a bigger challenge. Uh, for long-term fasting um, for women. And for women, for any given uh, measure of obesity, any give, uh, as a function of BMI, women have a bigger swing in their leptin response. So very quickly, leptin is a hormone secreted from the adipocyte. It it's basically a satiety signal. It tells your brain that you're full. Um, with fasting... Um, which is, you know, in most cases, either a model of caloric restriction, like I was describing in that caloric liquid fast, or it's like a non-caloric liquid fast where you're just having black coffee, water, tea. Women will hit that point sooner of getting hungry versus their male counterparts. Okay. Um, so females who are overweight will all will display sort of a cluster of symptoms that are consistent with this idea of leptin resistance. And that makes sense, again, from an evolutionary standpoint. You know, we have a higher baseline of adipose tissue than our male counterparts do because we need the, that, that excess adiposity to support a menstrual cycle in our reproductive, reproductive years. Um, as we age, we, we have a decline in our sex hormones with testosterone in particular. And if we're not, let's say, engaging in regular, here it is again, resistance training, um, or there's like a defined strategy, let's say, to put on lean muscle mass, we can become sarcopenic, osteopenic, frail, and brittle. And we will over time, net net become fatter. And I don't mean this in like a fat phobic or anything like that way. I just mean that our percentage of fat is going to go up. Sarcopenia by definition is the fatty infiltration of the muscle. That is something you do not want. You want the muscle to be muscle and you want the fat to be fat. Okay. We don't want the fat in the muscle. It's nice when you're going up for steak, <laughs> right? Like it's nice when you're 
you know, getting that nice marbled steak or, or what have you like that's kind of that's that sarcopenia. That's like that marbling that you see. Uh, we don't want that on the human frame. Okay. Um, and please don't write into me about animal issues, like animal cruelty <laughs> issues. I like my steak. I like it marbled. I don't want it on my women. Okay. I don't want it on my humans. Um, and of course where we differ from, uh, you know, from men in terms of fasting, is women in general, when we're fasting, our leptin levels can rise up to three to four fold higher as, uh, as a function of BMI. So it doesn't matter, let's say, when we compare male and female counterparts, if we kind of equate them for BMI, women's, the leptin levels in the women are going to rise three to four times higher. Okay. And so when we think about leptin resistance, so I I just want to explain this for a minute because it acts very similarly to insulin resistance. Um, so we expect in a normal individual, you eat some food, you know, hopefully it has some protein, has some fat, has some carbohydrates, and then your, your, uh, body will sort of, you know, you, you will have that, uh, signal that, okay, I've taken in enough calories. Like we, we can go into the protein leverage hypothesis. We can talk about, uh, you know, a, a, a protein first approach, let's say where your body will basically scour, uh, the food that you are, it will sort of evaluate the food that you're taking in. And if you don't have enough protein in it, particularly in the first meal of the day, uh, you're going to increase your calorie consumption over the course of the day and you will cons- overconsume carbohydrates and you will overconsume um, fats as well. But let's just pretend that you're having like a perfectly balanced ratioed meal. You're consuming, um, you're consuming food. Normally what should happen is the adipocyte will pick that up and say, okay, I've had enough protein. There's enough fats in here uh, to keep me making all my fat soluble vitamins and give me great skin and all the things, great enough carbohydrates, all the things. So I'm going to release leptin and then that's going to be picked up in the appetite regulation centers in the brain. And your brain is going to be like, huh, she's full. And what is the behavior that follows that? You put the fork down, you stop eating. In a leptin resistant model, um, you will continue to consume food. So even though you might have, let's say, excess adiposity, maybe you ha- you maybe you're even if you're overweight, um, for whatever reason, there is a um, resistance to picking up leptin in those appetite regulation centers in the brain. So that leads to an increased caloric intake, increased food cravings, overeating, uh, of course, which is going to, when we are continuously over long Delta, taking in more calories, weight gain ensues. And then as you gain more fat, the number of fat cells are going to increase as do leptin levels. So our leptin levels are increasing and increasing and increasing, and yet we continue to overeat. Okay. So this is important, uh, for women to understand because, um, our serum leptin levels, um, well, I'll say the, I'll say it this way. The observation that serum leptin is not related to energy expenditure rates suggests at least that leptin regulates body fat predominantly by altering our eating behavior rather than, uh, you know, uh, you know, calorigenesis, let's say it that way. Okay. Everyone's favorite butterfly-shaped organ. Uh, let's move on to the thyroid. Okay. So the other thing that I see 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm hopefully at this point, um, if you've been, if you listen to the first lecture and you're listening now, um, there is, if you are engaging in too much fasting too often and too aggressive, it is this hormone. It is this rather, uh, endocrine organ, I should say, um, that is going to be affected. And most often what I see is for women who are aggressively fasting, what we tend to see when we're kind of looking at thyroid panels, like if we're looking at blood work, is an increase in something called reverse T3. Um, Now, reverse T3 is basically, you know, I like to tell my patients, it's kind of like junk T3. It's sort of like kind of the mirror opposite of active, like the active hormone T3, but it, it doesn't really do much. It is a, it is a feedback loop. It is a feedback mechanism. And we, when you're aggressively fasting, you know, when you are suppressing your insulin levels for too long, this can contribute to an increase in in reverse T3, which of course is going to contribute to suppression of thyroid function. One of the things that uh, is kind of classic uh, or, you know, a side effect, let's say, or a clinical indicator of an elevated reverse T3 is a decrease in body temperature and always feeling cold. Like if you're always cold, like you're cold in the summer, uh, let's say, or you always are wearing like sweaters and all of that, your reverse T3 might be elevated. So we want to be thinking about... um, uh, we want to be thinking about how we can support the thyroid. Uh, I believe I've done other podcasts. Uh, I know I've done other podcasts on on the thyroid, so we'll make sure that we link them um, in the show notes for you to have a look at. But one of the things I like to um, always make sure that I am myself consuming as well as my patients are high selenium uh, and high iodine foods like salt. Salt is very important. Um, so for me, like I'm Portuguese, so, you know, I love me some sardines, <laughs> sardines. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, ways to get, um, uh, high selenium foods, Brazil nuts, uh, the heavyweight champion we'll say of, um, uh, of high selenium foods. And of course, if you can stomach liver, that's also great as well. Uh, I, cannot do that. Uh, I will be very open and honest with you. So I do have the capsules, like the liver capsules, or I really like liverwurst. I have found that liverwurst uh, and me are very good friends. So I like liverwurst, which is basically kind of some uh, like a liver pate with sometimes there's hearts and like other spices and stuff in it as well. Now, some people have a high reverse T3, even when they're not uh, calorically restricted. Okay, so that implies that the thyroid issue may have more to do with the suppression of insulin itself uh, than it does with the restriction of calories. And of course, as it usually goes, this is way more common in women than it is in men. I would say that if you at least the patient population that I have seen, this is happening in at least like call it 30 to 40 percent of women um, where we are seeing 
aggressive, aggressive fat, like the suppression of insulin, let's say, or if the other, the other population, like they're, they've been doing keto for too long. You've been doing the ketogenic diet for like years and years and years. And we see this like chronic suppression of insulin, which leads to this elevated levels of reverse, um, T3. It's like, I call this like the deadly triad. I talk about this with my doctors, um, in esteem certification. It's kind of like this deadly triad of a woman who is aggressively fasting. She's doing way too much cardio. Like she's at orange theory and she has her Peloton bike and she has all the things. Um, and she's doing keto, let's say, or some form of caloric restriction. And she's doing you know, in her attempt either to lose weight or, you know, to look a certain way, it's kind of this like orthorexic, um, type of, uh, behavior that leads this sort of cluster of these sort of three things like over cardioing, over fasting, and then over overly calorically restricting, uh, is often where we start to see suppression, um, of thyroid function. And, the other, the other classic for me often as well is a woman who's like, let's say she's doing Peloton or whatever it is, Orange Theory. And I'm, tr- I'm not trying to show, you know, throw shade at these particular companies. It's just that those are the two that I hear the most. So I'm using them as examples. Um, certainly there are other uh, apps and there are other programs where people are doing, you know, high intensity interval training far too often. Okay. So this kind of gets into a conversation of like, when we are doing our cardiovascular work, which is important, what zone should we be training in? Most women are, you know, working way too hard. They're doing it four or five times a week. They're probably in zone five or six and they're in zone five or six for like 40 minutes to 60 minutes, you know, four times, five times, six times a week, which of course, is going to drive up that cortisol. We were just talking about cortisol before. This is kind of paired in with it as well. If you're driving up, that is a that is an adaptation that your body, like your body's like, why are we running from a tiger six times a week? You know, like why are we, why is this output necessary? I'm much more a fan, and I've spoken about this before uh, in an episode that I believe is entitled Chronic Cardio, uh, which we'll also link in the show notes for you. But zone two and zone three is kind of where I like to keep. And so I would say preferentially, if I had to pick between those two, zone two uh, is where I preferentially like to train. If I'm doing uh, any cardiovascular work, it's going to be in zone two. Uh, when I'm lifting, I'm certainly in zone two as well, because that's kind of where life happens. Life happens in zone one and zone two, right? We walk, we stand, we like run, we rush to get, you know, we kind of trot, let's say to catch the bus or, you know, to get in line or to walk fast like to pass someone on the sidewalk, like, like stuff, life happens in zone two. And I feel like if we're training, you know, hopefully you're training to look better, you know, to change your body composition, to change your metabolic and your physiological health, but you're also training to get better at life, right? Like you're also training so that you don't have to ask somebody to help you uh, lift something or open a jar or get up off the floor you can get up off the floor unassisted, right? Like hopefully the training in your exercise program is to help you be better at life right now. And also, again, taking that longer lens, you know, for you to be better at life when you're 20 or 30 years from now, right? Because that's that's going to happen. We're going to be 20 or 30 years older. And, you know, we might as well start training for that um, now. So fasting aggressively, not a huge fan uh, for the thyroid. So 
again, one of the so one of the ways that I will typically counsel someone if they do have a hypothyroid, if they do have low functioning thyroid is to like easy does it and slowly does it. Right. So we don't want to change all the things all at once. Um, the thyroid is usually the last organ. At least I've observed this, like it's sort of the last thing to go. So it's not like your thyroid wakes up and it's like, I cannot handle these conditions. I'm gone. <laughs> like on day one, like it takes a couple of decades for the thyroid to be like, listen, like we, we got to talk because this is this, this environment is not, uh, acceptable anymore. Um, so with a, with a woman with Hashimoto's there's uh, or, or low functioning thyroid, I'll say, um, there's a couple of different options. Usually I'll start with changing her nutrition. Uh, I'm usually not going to get her to fast any kind of, like if we already have lab work and I see that there's an elevated, uh, RT3, uh, we're usually not going to do much fasting. Like it's going to be like a 12, 12, if that, it's like something that's nice and easy. It's not a big, uh, hormetic stressor on the body. And we're usually going to start with her nutrition. So um, I usually have two approaches <laughs> that are like polar opposites of each other when it comes to thyroid and they both work marvelously well. There's a bit of an art in terms of figuring out who is going to do better with what, but it's either a uh, full on carnivore where we are, and it's, this is usually the woman that has like thyroid antibodies. She has like a, a whole set of like deranged digestive issues, um, leaky gut. She has maybe some parasites, uh, H pylori. Like there's a whole sort of clinical picture that I'm kind of looking for, but she's, I, I'm either putting her on a therapeutic, so short-lived, um, carnivore diet, or I'm going to follow more of the Terry Walls protocol, which is like, you know, the polar opposite of carnivore, which is like nine colors, all the colors of all the vegetables, um, you know, uh, uh, an appropriate amount of protein and fat, um, but there are different sort of constituents in terms of which clinical, uh, uh, we'll say manipulation I'm going to follow. Um, okay. So with that, this is one of my favorite pictures, all these ladies in the, I would, I would call this maybe the forties or fifties. I love these bathing suits. Um, I hope that over the last two weeks, um, I've been able to demonstrably show you that women are having much more complex hormonal environment, that we are much more sensitive to changes, let's say, uh, in our environment, in our exogenous consumption, like, uh, you know, our, our response to foods, uh, when we're fasting, um, we have, you know, more moving parts and fluctuations that are, you know, supposed to occur cyclically that don't necessarily happen, uh, in our male, uh, counterparts. And of course, you know, we talked about this last week that there is certainly a bias with, um, studying men, right? So there isn't, I mean, it's getting better. Um, but our culture's love and unfortunately sometimes obsession with randomized controlled trials and trying to tease out all the variables, uh, I think has led to a real hole uh, in the literature surrounding females. I'll say that it is, it, but it is getting better. We are starting to see more and more research that is just female focused because we are starting to wake up to this idea that we are not, um, that we are not, uh, little men. For women with PCOS, they responded just beautifully to fasting, kind of all kinds until we sort of get that metabolic train until she's, you know, we start to see her healing. For women with estrogen dominance, really, really like a, um, 
uh, sort of a gut and liver evaluation, sort of that caloric liquid fasting, particularly in the luteal phase of her cycle. Um, for my women who are chronically stressed and inflamed, we don't want to be adding more stressors. So again, like a nice gentle fast for her. Uh, same goes for thyroid. Women with low functioning thyroid, the fasting is not the place to start. It's usually the last place that we tweak if all the other variables that we've manipulated have not been working. And like I said, with my thyroid patients, it's going to be food that we start with. So I hope that you have found this um, really useful. And I'm just going to stop my share here and come back back. There we go. Hello. Um, so I hope that you found this useful. I would love to hear your feedback, your comments. Uh, we try to read at, we, well, I should say we do read every single review that comes in worldwide, whether that's coming in from the U S Canada, Europe, uh, Oceania, all the places we read them. Um, so would love to hear your feedback next week. I'm going to be working. I've been working on preparing an AMA. So I had posed some questions out to my Instagram uh, followers, got a ton of questions. And so I am currently preparing uh, to have a little nerd sermon uh, with you on that. So that should be coming next week. And until then, I hope you have a great one and I uh, hope that you've gained a little bit more insight into why we always want to be very gentle with our fasting protocols as it, as it, as it pertains to ladies. With that, I bid you adieu and we'll see you next week. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 